So we're back in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Um, for those of you that have been with us for a while, we've been taking a, a short break, about six weeks, to talk about some other things. We just finished a series on membership in the church and um, did a little Q&R session last week. Uh, for those of you that had membership questions, we kind of talked through what it meant to be a member here at Revelation Church. Um, if you still have questions about membership at all, um, you can't text them in anonymously. That time has passed. I'm sorry, but I would love to answer them. So feel free to ask your questions. I was talking with somebody this morning and um, just about some membership questions they had. And, and we, we really want this to be a community of people where questions are, are an okay thing to present. They're an okay thing to ask. There's, there's not a... Um, there shouldn't be a stigma about, hey, I don't understand this, or I flat out disagree with that. Show me in the Bible where you're right. Um, we want to be able to have dialogue about those kind of things. So if, you're, if you've been through our membership series and you're like, I still don't understand some things about why you're doing some things or why you said some certain things, I'd love to chat with you about that. Uh, we don't want to be afraid of questions. So Matthew chapter 12 when I was, I, for a while I worked for the Salvation Army and I worked in an office here in Coeur d'Alene and um, I was a part of some new initiatives that we were doing. I was sitting at my desk a lot, um, doing logistics, writing policy, building spreadsheets, super fun stuff. Um, but the, I, I would get into this groove in my work day and, and, the, and, and I didn't want to quit working to take lunch. So what I would do is I would take my lunch into my office with me and I would just pull it out at noon and I would eat at my computer and keep working. And I found that that was very helpful for me to stay focused throughout the day. And our employee manual had this uh, clause in it that said that an employee doesn't have to stay at their work through lunch. They can, they can take a break, they can leave their desk they can go eat their lunch for half an hour uh, because the company wanted to bless the staff and say, hey, you can do this. You don't have to work too hard. You can step away from your work and, and take a break. And, and I just didn't feel that that was something that I needed, so I ignored that until HR sent out a memo and said, if you're found eating your lunch at your desk, there will be consequences. And what the company created for the benefit and for the good of its staff had turned into something that was meant to punish people. And it was super weird to have a conversation with HR that was very sure that I was breaking the rules, even though I felt like I was being a better employee by eating my lunch at my desk and staying focused on my task. We're going to talk about the Sabbath this morning. And, and the Sabbath law for the Israelite people in the first century had become this kind of thing. Something that was meant for good that had been twisted into something that was tedious. And some of you may be here and you're like, yeah, I've been in church for a long time and I know all about the Sabbath. So you can tune out for this next part. But for those of you that are a little confused on what the Sabbath is, we're going to do a little, little history of what the Sabbath is before we get directly into our text. So the Sabbath law goes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis. The very beginning of your Bible, Moses writes that God created the world in six days. And then on the seventh day, 
He rested. And for many of us, when we, when we read that, we think like God worked really hard for six days and he was beat. And so he needed a day off. But if you know anything about the God of the Bible, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, why did he need a break? Was he tired? Was he, was, I mean, the giraffe was really hard on him. And like, I don't know. But that's not what the Hebrew people would have understood when they read Genesis. See, in the ancient Near East, the idea of rest, especially for a God, and we see this in Babylonian and Sumerian and other texts as well, had a very different connotation. And you can think of it like this. Right now, Unfortunately, we are in presidential campaign season, a year and a half before the election. And there are all these candidates that are working hard to debate each other and to go from town to town and shake hands and put together policies. And a year and a half from now, one of them is going to win and they're gonna take up residence in the White House. And when they win, when they accomplish this great goal of campaigning, they're not going to take a break, but the kind of work they're going to do is going to change. They're going to stop doing the strange work of campaigning, and they're going to begin to do the regular work of governing. And for the early readers of Genesis, they would have read that God did a a spectacular, one-of-a-kind work in creating the world. And then on the seventh day, he changed. He entered his creation. He entered the temple of his new world and began to rule. And so when he rests, he takes up residence in his world and begins to rule it. And so when the Israelites looked at this, they saw God ruling the cosmos. And because God is ruling the cosmos, they could take a day off. They didn't have to take care of all of the things that they had to take care of for six days because on the seventh day, they could remind themselves, God is in control. God has got this. God loves us. We just saying, he's a good, good father, right? Like God has all of the details figured out. And this is what the Sabbath was meant to be. It was meant to be a gift to God's people from God that, hey, you don't have to work today because I want you to remember and I want you to rejoice that I'm in control. But then we read about the Sabbath laws in the Old Testament and and it's a big deal to break the Sabbath. There's even one episode where a guy ignores the Sabbath and he goes and picks up firewood and they kill him. Like, wow, that's heavy. But God really wanted to impress on his people that they needed to trust him. See, by ignoring the Sabbath, they were communicating a lack of trust in God. I have this tendency, and some of you who have worked with me know this, where I will assign tasks to you, and then I will just go do them myself. And if you've ever experienced that from me, first of all, I apologize. And secondly, it communicates that I don't really trust you. Like, I really want you to do this, but I'm not really sure you're going to do it, so I'm going to do it myself. And that's a character flaw. That's part of the brokenness, the sin that lives inside of me. But that's what 
God was trying to communicate to the Israelites. Like when you work on the Sabbath, when you don't trust that I have this under control, you're communicating that you don't trust me. And so the Sabbath becomes this major holiday for the Jewish people. In Exodus 20, um, I'll, I'll read that real quick. Exodus 20 verse eight is where the Sabbath law is. And Moses writes down, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So we get that, and then there's a few other things scattered around in the Old Testament that provide some clarity as to what the Sabbath is about. But in general, the Sabbath law is, is fairly vague. Don't work. And so naturally, the people were, went like, well, what's work? Like, what does it mean to not work? Can I do this? Can I not do that? What, what's, what's it look like to break the Sabbath? Because it's an important thing. I want to honor God. I want to love the Lord. I want to show that I trust him. How do I do it? And so the Jewish leaders over the course of centuries, they wrote down a long list of what is work, what's not work, how the Sabbath should be kept. And they initially, they did this because they wanted people to worship God well and rightly. And so they developed 39 categories of different activities that were considered work. And there were hundreds of activities in those categories that were forbidden. And I'm going to read the categories because I think it's fun. So these, this is work. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing sheep, bleaching, dyeing, spinning, stretching, making two loops, threading needles, weaving, separating, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, slaughtering, flaying, treating skins, scraping pelts, marking something out, cutting something, writing, erasing, construction, kindling a flame, carrying something from a private space to a public space or vice versa, or putting the finishing touches on a piece of something that has been begun before the Sabbath. The Sabbath became tedious to the Jewish people. There's just so many things that you can and cannot do. And this continues to today. Um, I... Uh, frequently buy pro audio equipment from a company in New York that is run by an Orthodox Jewish family. And if you go on their website on Saturday, it says you can put stuff in your shopping cart, but you can't check out until 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. Because it's the Sabbath. And because if I check out, it will generate an email, which is writing, and writing is forbidden on the Sabbath. If you go to Israel, you'll find in large buildings something called Sabbath elevators. Sabbath elevators work this way. They don't have any buttons on them. They just stop at every single floor. And so if you're on the first floor, you have to wait until the elevator comes down to you and opens by itself. You can get on and then it goes up to the second floor and the doors open and close again. And it goes up to the third floor and the doors open and close again. Because if you push that button, 
you're igniting an electrical spark, which is kindling a flame. And so the Sabbath became incredibly difficult to keep. But it also became kind of a part of Jewish national pride. Like the Jews had the Sabbath. Look at the lengths that they go to to serve and obey their God. And the Pharisees, the the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, they kept developing rules. And that's what gave them power. In order to follow God, you have to follow us. And so this is the backdrop that we see Jesus in in Matthew chapter 12. And I love this. I love pointing this out every time I think of it because I think it's so powerful. Um, we, we see this book, we, we, we treat this book, we believe that this book is God's word, right? This is, this is God's book. This is a divine text. But some, we, we treat it so much like a divine text that sometimes we forget that it's also a human text. Matthew is a real person writing a real story. And for his first readers... There are no verse breaks and there are no chapter breaks. And look at what he says at the end of chapter 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have to believe that Matthew did that on purpose, that he records the words of Jesus talking about how he is the ultimate rest, and then he immediately goes into a story about the Sabbath, the day of rest. Turn with me if if you'd like to Colossians chapter 2. Paul picks up on this idea. In Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. And so Matthew, in just brilliantly as a storyteller, is, is letting us know that Jesus is our rest and then he's showing us how this works out during the Sabbath. Verse one, at that time, Jesus gathered, or at that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the first thing it's important to realize is that the disciples aren't breaking the law because they're picking grain. Um, Israel had a pretty advanced social welfare system where wealthy landowners were not allowed to reap their entire harvest. They had to leave some of it for the poor to uh, pick themselves. And it's a reminder here that at least this point in their lives, the disciples aren't wealthy people. They're poor people. They're, as we're going to read in a minute, they're probably going to synagogue on the Sabbath. They're going to church and they're passing along a field and they haven't had breakfast and they're allowed to eat in general from the heads of grain in the field. But what they are doing 
is they're doing this on the Sabbath. And before we talk about that, it's interesting that the Pharisees go to Jesus for this, right? Your disciples are doing this thing that's wrong. And it, it reminds me that even though the Pharisees are in the wrong here, people on the outside will see Jesus' people and it will reflect on Jesus. Like, we don't want that to be true. Like, we see Christians behaving badly and we go like, well, they're not real Christians or that's not how God's people should be acting. But people on the outside, they don't see that. They just see people who say that they follow Jesus and they make decisions about Jesus because of it. I read an article in Newsweek this week, and Newsweek is not very friendly to God's people in general in their reporting. But it was a story of a pastor in, in New York who was part of a nonprofit that worked with HIV AIDS victims in poverty. And he illegally took $600,000 from this charity and spent it on cars and Caribbean vacations. And Newsweek used that as an opportunity to talk bad about Jesus. And I think, man, we, we need to remember that, that the, the way we live our lives, the actions that we take, those people outside aren't going to come to us. They're going to look at Jesus. And this is what the Pharisees do. And they're mad at Jesus because Jesus is letting his disciples break the Sabbath law. Because see, they're pulling the grain, which is reaping, and they're chewing it, which is grinding. Those are two categories that are illegal on the Sabbath. And it's easy for us to say, well, those are just like extra rules that the Pharisees made up. That's not really what the Bible said. But to the Jewish people, the extra rules that the Pharisees made up, they were a big deal. They were rules to be followed. It might as well have been the Bible to them. And so this is a very serious charge. Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. Look what Jesus says in verse three. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. He brings up a story in 1 Samuel 21. In this story, David, who is the true king of Israel, is running from Saul, who is the current king of Israel, and he wants to kill David. And he shows up at the place of worship where God's presence was. And he, he's got some men with him. And he comes to the priest and he says, hey, we're hungry. Do you have any food? And what the priests had, they had seven loaves of bread that were baked every week and laid out in the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of the week, that bread was taken off and new bread was baked and re replaced it. But the old bread was given to the priests to eat. And it's, it's very clear in the Old Testament that the priests get to eat this special bread. But the priest in this story goes, well, David, you're the true king and you're on an important mission. So I guess it's okay, you can have the bread. 
And so he takes the special bread and he eats it and he gives it to his men. And what Jesus is saying is really, really astounding. And, and again, I, I feel like I don't, I don't see this when I read the text because I'm so used to it. But um, David, or Jesus is going, remember how David, the king, the anointed ruler, the one that everybody loves, remember how he broke the law and got away with it because he's David? It's like that with me. And he doesn't specifically say it here, but he says, like, I'm, I'm King David. I'm better than, I'm at least as good as David. I'm playing the role of David. Maybe even I'm better than David. And he doesn't bicker and argue with the Pharisees about how their extra rules are burdensome and not really what God intended. He just says, I'm the king and these are my guys and they're going to have breakfast. And then he goes on, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So the priests, they had work to do on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. It was church day for the people of Israel. And professional ministers have work to do on church day, where maybe on a Sunday, everybody comes to church, has a good time, goes out to brunch, goes out to the lake. It's great. Pastors, church leaders, oftentimes work on Sunday. And it would have been the same on Saturday for the priests. They had sacrifices to offer. They had observances to make. They had things to do. And they would break the Sabbath laws in doing those things. And Jesus says, you know how they do that? Because they're associated with the temple? Something greater than the temple is here. And again, this is, this is kind of insane. Like Jesus, Jesus is... If he's not who we believe he is, he's out of his mind. Because see, the temple, the temple is this place where God lives. God's presence on earth is at the temple. If you are a man or a woman in ancient Israel, you go to the temple to be with God. And the priests, they work in the temple and they are absolved from the penalties of breaking the Sabbath because they are working with God. And God lives there and God connects with his people there. And it's a special place. It's the most special place in the entire country. This is is literally what the people are celebrating on the Sabbath. God is in there ruling the universe so I don't have to work today. God lives here keeping track of the details of my life. And I can trust that he is there leading and guiding his people in the temple where he dwells. And so I don't have to work today. And Jesus says, I'm better than that. I'm bigger than that. Jesus calls himself the temple. 
And we know that from the other places in the gospels and the epistles that Jesus, call, Jesus says he is God's temple. He is the place where God dwells. Do you want to get close to God? You get close to Jesus. And it's insane that he says this, if it's not true. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example this week of, that would be similar. I mean, unfortunately, we don't believe in anything in America. We don't have any sacred anything, it seems. But if you've ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in uh, Virginia, it's this solemn, sacred place where there's this monument to men and women who have lost their lives in service to their country who cannot be identified. And there's a guard there that has a very solemn routine of, of uh, guarding this space. And imagine being in a group of people quietly observing this sight. And some guys all like, they should be guarding me. I'm more important than that. And how ridiculous and disrespectful that would be. Like that maybe is a little bit of what the Pharisees are feeling right now. Like you're bigger than the temple. You're better than the temple. This is your reasoning for why your guys get to eat breakfast and break the Sabbath law. You're narcissistic and insane. This is what they would have been thinking. But Jesus doesn't stop there. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he quotes from the book of Hosea. This is the second time he's quoted this passage in Matthew. And he says, you know what? God has priorities, God desires mercy more than sacrifice. Now, it's not that sacrifice is a bad thing. God set up this whole system of how people should worship him. And that's okay. And that's good. But what's more important to God is mercy, is loving people, is treating people with kindness. It takes priority over ritual. The whole reason that the Sabbath is being celebrated is because God is so good. And the Pharisees have forgotten this. And then he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So if saying, I'm King David, isn't bad enough, he goes on to say, I'm better than the temple. And if that's not bad enough, he says, I'm Yahweh, I'm God. And, and, for, and, and I, I find it so funny that like, you can get on YouTube and find people that are like, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus is saying he's God like on every page of this book. Over and over again, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, these are my Sabbaths. This is, celebrate my Sabbath. This day belongs to me. And Jesus says, 
It belongs to me. This day of rest, this celebration of the fact that God is good, that he's in control, that he's got you. This is mine. And if you want to experience it, you need to be around me, Jesus says. And these guys that are having breakfast have not done anything wrong. And it puts the Pharisees in a really weird position because they're arguing at this point about the meaning of a book that Jesus is saying that he wrote. And they have an opportunity to go like, oh, well, you're the author, you would know. But they don't do that. They just get angry. They don't believe him. We, um, our country experienced another um, mass shooting yesterday. Terrible mass shooting in Texas. And it, it happens a lot around here. And, and it's, it's awful. And we, we talk about, like, how do we fix this? And it comes down very often to the Second Amendment of the Constitution. And we, people on the news or, or even like the, the courts, the Supreme Court will, will read the Second Amendment and go like, so what does it mean that we get to keep and bear arms? What is a well-regulated militia? How does this work and how does this affect our current climate? And I was thinking like, if we could go get James Madison from the 1700s and bring him here and go like, hey, James what did you mean by this? Here's what we're dealing with. How would you handle it? You wrote this. What are we supposed to do? That would solve a lot of problems. And this is what they have in Jesus. They, they, they have this, this idea that they're supposed to keep the Sabbath and, and they're not quite sure what that means. And Jesus is here saying, let me tell you what it means but they don't want to listen because in the end, it's going to threaten their power. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue and there he saw a man who had a shriveled hand and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. So the Pharisees believed, and again, in this list of 39 categories, there's some specifics about healing people. And they, and they said that if, if it wasn't an emergency, like if you're going to die, we can, we can 
work on you. We can heal you. We can try to stabilize the situation. But if you're not going to die, if it's not life-threatening, um, you have to wait. You have to wait until the Sabbath is over before you can be healed. And I just, I mean, think about how, how twisted these men are at this point to where they're, they're bringing in this man with this deformity simply to trip up Jesus. They're just trying to get Jesus. They've been so deluded by their own power and the fact that he's threatening it, that they're going to manipulate this man for their own ends. But Jesus asks them how they would treat a sheep that fell into a pit. And it's funny, there's actually quite a bit of argument about this in like ancient Jewish literature about whether you could like put something in the pit so that the sheep could stand on it and jump out or like if you had to wait or like if you could drop food into the pit or like there's all these like debates about how you deal with the sheep in a pit. But at this point, it seems that they all agree that you can help the sheep in the pit on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you guys, people are more valuable than animals. And I realize that's a pretty controversial statement today. <laughs> but, but, uh, but it's true. Because the Pharisees, they do not see that the whole point of the Sabbath is the celebration of God's goodness and his care for his people. And Jesus says it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And so he heals him. He doesn't even touch him. He just says, stretch out your hand. And he heals him. And yet the Pharisees, who again, they could have seen the gift that they had been given by the fact that the author of their law was standing in front of them, showing them what it meant to love God well. Instead, they went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Because going back to what we talked about in the beginning, in order to follow God rightly, you had to follow the Pharisees rightly because they made the rules. And Jesus was a threat to that. And so he had to be done away with. So a couple of things that I kind of want us to think through as we close. The first question that I, I think we can draw from this that I think we should consider is the question of how do we wield power? And how does Jesus wield power? Look at, like, look at how this argument starts. Jesus' disciples, the men that he has been entrusted to care for and lead, they want breakfast. And what cards does Jesus pull for that? I am King David, I'm bigger than the temple, and I'm Yahweh himself. My guys get breakfast. And I think, like, how do we use power? 
Like we all have some kind of power or authority in some situation or another. Maybe it's just a little bit, maybe it's a lot, but do we see little things, little needs? I know I am woefully oblivious to this. Like I go throughout my day neglecting to see ways that I could use my influence, my authority, my ability to just do little things for people that are meaningful. But Jesus has no problem playing his God of the universe card to get his guys breakfast. And then secondly, he pursues proactive goodness. And what I mean by that is this guy with the shriveled hand, I mean, it's, it's true that like he's probably had a shriveled hand for a long time. And I don't really think Jesus meant to go picking fights with people. So he could have been like, you know what? Maybe back here tomorrow, we'll take care of that. Good as new. What's one more day? But instead, he sees an opportunity to do good, and he does it. And again, how many times do I see an opportunity to do good and go, oh, well, I don't know, maybe somebody else will do it? Or what if they don't really want me to help? What if it would be embarrassing for them if I asked them if they needed help? Do you ever play mind games with yourself about like, well, you know, I could... I, I do this at the, at the grocery store. I, don't rarely, I rarely go to the grocery store. My wife will tell you that. But I, I go to the grocery store and, and you're out in the parking lot and somebody's unloading their cart and I think, you know, they're about done with their cart. I could go up and ask if I could take their cart back, but then maybe they would think that's weird and maybe they'd think I was weird and I don't want to be weird. And, and so like I play this, this whole big scenario in my mind and then a good deed doesn't happen because I blew it. But Jesus sees this opportunity when he knows that it will cause him problems. And he says, you know what? I'm going to heal this guy because it's, a, it's the right thing to do. And the second question that I would ask us is, how do we view God's law? Because as Christians, we are not under the law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. There are things in the Old Testament that were, the Jewish people had to observe, for one, the Saturday Sabbath, that we do not have to observe. But we would be fooling ourselves to say that the New Testament is not full of commands. Like, be kind, be generous, be sexually pure. There's all kinds of things that the Bible says in Jesus' words, I mean, we, we, we went through the Sermon on the Mount several months ago, and it's heavy with, this is how you should live as a Christian. How do, we, how do we respond to that? Is that a burden to us? Is it like, man, I gotta do these things, or I'm gonna be in trouble? This is what the Pharisees thought. We gotta, the, we gotta do this, or we're gonna be in trouble. You, you didn't do it. You're in trouble. How many of us walk around hoping that no one knows that we're not perfect because we don't want to get called out? Talked to several people the last couple of weeks that said, like, I don't know that I can be a Christian because I don't think I'm good enough yet. Like, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> the truth is, like, we're all broken. 
Are we afraid of God's laws? Are they a burden to us? Are we depressed because I can't keep the commands? Or do we see God's laws as a means to an end? Maybe we are good at keeping God's laws. Maybe we're like nailing it. Just like I'm so pure and I'm so kind and generous and I'm super humble. And like, and we just got it, right? There's, there's a debate in the, in the Christian subculture right now over something called purity culture. This is something that, that I experienced in junior high and high school, and it was this set of teachings surrounding sexual purity for young people and how if you, if you remain sexually pure and stay a virgin until your wedding day and you marry another virgin, God's going to bless you. It's, your marriage is going to be awesome. And that generation that, be, that, that was taught that, and, 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 and the base of that is like, is sexual purity is biblical, right? We should, we should see our bodies as temples and we should value that relationship intimately expressed in a covenant marriage. But what was pushed to a whole generation of young people was, if you follow all these rules, God's going to do these things for you. And now that generation is older and, and, and many of them have realized, wow, marriage is hard. And things didn't turn out the way I was promised. And there's huge fallout from that. Because a whole generation of young people were taught following God's law is a means to get something out of God. If you want this other thing here, you just, you just be a good Christian and God will give you those things. And God does bless his people, but God doesn't promise us those things. God is not a vending machine to where we just do the thing and then the reward pops out in the back. Or do we see God's law the way Jesus, I think, is trying to help us see it? which is that God's laws bring us closer to God. The Jewish people would have celebrated the Sabbath. They would stop their regular routine. They would go to the temple. They would worship. They would remember who God is. They would remember that he loves them. They would remember that he's caring for their needs. And their relationship with their creator would grow. And Jesus is saying, look, I come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I am your Sabbath. The the reward for following God is God. Psalm 119. For those of you that are familiar with Psalm 119? It's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's a song about the Bible. And I haven't planned anything here. I'm just going to read some random verses. Uh, 103 says, How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Verse 135 says, make your face shine on your servant and teach me your statutes. 
Verse 111 says, I have your decrees as a heritage forever. Indeed, they are the joy of my heart. Do you feel that way about following God? Do you feel like, yeah, God, tell me how to live. I want to know. I want to do what's right because that's where I find you. All these things that we talk about all the time at church, generosity and purity and and humility and kindness and and good works and love for neighbor and, and all of these things, they're meant to draw us closer to our God because that's who he is. And that's ultimately the reward we get for following Christ. We get Christ, we get Jesus. And the disciples, they're, they're going to continue to struggle with that, but they're going to learn it a little bit more and a little bit more as this book progresses. And the Pharisees are going to still hate the fact that Jesus is a threat to their power. And they're going to miss it. And my, my hope and my prayer for all of us is that we would be more like the disciples. I can guarantee you that I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what it means to follow Jesus as I should but I'm growing. I'm learning a little bit more day by day. And that's the kind of person that I want to be. That's the kind of community I want us to be. Not people who disregard the goodness of God for selfish reasons, but pursue him through worship, through relationship, through obedience and grow closer to him. So we're going to take communion. Um, We always do every week. The bread and the juice are symbols that Jesus has given us to remind us of a few different things. They remind us of past, his death on the cross, his, his sacrifice for our sin, the fact that he died to take away the brokenness in our souls and make us right with God. They, the, the communion meal is a reminder of the present. We, we take the cup and the, the bread into our bodies as sustenance. Granted, it's symbolic. It's not much sustenance. But it is a symbol of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us and empowers us to live lives that are becoming more and more like Jesus. And then it reminds us of the future because Jesus says, someday soon I'm coming back for my people and we're going to have a party together. We're going to celebrate together and I'm going to drink this cup and eat this bread with you at that meal. And it's a reminder that we've been given a job to do in this place, but that our God is coming back for us someday soon. And so if you're, a, if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, if, if you would say, yeah, Jesus is my king. He has taken away my sin. I would, I would invite you to come up as the, as the band plays a little bit more and we sing and, and take communion with the rest of the community. And there's, there's juice and there's wine and you can choose that based on your conscience. 
But we're going to spend a little bit of time in song, um, singing to God, singing to one another, reminding each other of the goodness of our Father. And I would just encourage you to take a few minutes and just reflect on how you view the commands of God, how you deal with the authority and the power that you've been given. Are you you walking around as a Christian for some benefit, some thing out there that it's going to get you? Or are you a Christian because you want Christ? Let's pray. God, thanks for an opportunity to gather in this place. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that, that we, we can rest knowing that you've got this. Whatever the situation is, you are still seated on the throne. And God, as we reflect on the commands that you give us, the way you call us to live, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would continue to do work over the next few minutes. Just show us where we're, we're blind to our own faults. God, it's a grace that you give us to show us where we need correction. I just pray that you would do that. For those of us that are, that are burdened by what they think is a list of rules that they need to keep or you'll be angry with them, God, I pray that you give them freedom from that. You would help them understand that, that we walk, we follow you to be with you, not to earn something from you. And God, I just pray that as we sing, you would just remind us of who you are, that we would rejoice in your presence, and that we would hope in your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.